right, we are uh, going to finish up our spiritual discipline series this morning with the discipline of simplicity and generosity. We're on page 860 in the Gospel of Matthew, if you have the Pew Bible. And as we work through this text, if you have any questions, you can go into slider.com and text them in at, using the code REVCDA, and we'll take a look at those uh, at the end. Uh, before we get started this morning, though, um, I, if you were here last week, I was talking about silence and solitude. And I was talking about how when we experience solitude, one of the effects of that is that the sin in our life is amplified. And I, in my notes, I had an, what I thought was a really great illustration about that, talking about feedback in an audio system. And it just so happened that while I was using that illustration, we were struggling with feedback in our audio system. In the moment, I thought that was really providential and interesting. But what the reality was is by speaking the way I did, I really dishonored Greg Lampus, our sound man, unintentionally. Um, and I realized this after church and went and talked to him and, and sought his forgiveness. But since I did that in a public space, I wanted to seek your forgiveness in a public space as well um, and say that that was inappropriate of me. We want to be a people that outdo one another in showing honor and my comments, however unintentional, did the opposite of that. And so I want to apologize for that. And thank you for your grace. Um, I uh, often, um, yeah, I, I often uh, worry about um, saying things off the cuff that are inappropriate that I shouldn't say. And I want to keep uh, a, a close guard on my speech. Uh, I think that's important. So, um, Anyway, that's my little my announcement. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that we can uh, come before you in repentance and seek forgiveness. Thank you that we, you model that for us as we interact with one another. Thank you so much for um, Greg and his grace towards me in, in my actions last week. Thank you for these people and uh, their love for one another. God, I pray for um, the Picotta family. I pray for Christina and just her healing, that you would be with the doctors and the staff and, and the, the, the care providers that are surrounding her and that she would be um, just blessed in this season of, of healing. Nobody likes to be knocked down by illness, uh, but it is an opportunity to grow close to you. And I, I just know, uh, I don't know her well, but I know her well enough that she is uh, keenly aware of the opportunity to lean into you in trial. And I just pray that this season of recovery would be a blessing for her and her family. Pray for uh, this time together as we open your word, as we talk about discipline at the beginning of this Advent season, this, this season where we're reminded that you gave yourself to us. You gave out of your abundance to people that didn't deserve it. And as we talk about generosity, I just pray that that would ring uh, deeply in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so yeah, it's the first week of Advent. 
There are four Sundays before Christmas that the church traditionally has calendared and said, these are the weeks that we focus our attention on the coming of King Jesus as a baby in a manger. Christmas begins on uh, December 25th, but Advent is a season of reflection, of pondering. Uh, We talked about it a little bit earlier of fasting, of um, coming before the Lord in quietness to seek his face before the celebration of Christmas. Uh, The Advent fast starts this Wednesday. Um, If you're on our email list, you'll get an email reminder on Tuesday if you want to participate in the fast with us and um, fast from breakfast and lunch on on Wednesdays and Fridays as a uh, preparation for all of the feasting over Christmas. But as we come into this season, we're wrapping up this spiritual discipline series, and we're talking about simplicity and generosity. And the way I'd like to to phrase this to start out with is we've talked a lot about physical health and exercise and nutrition as an analog to spiritual health. And I don't know if this is a politically correct term or not, but do you guys know what a gym rat is? Okay. Somebody who like just lives at the gym. So there are certain people, and I, God bless them, if you're one of them, n- no shade on you, but that just go to the gym. Like their physical expression of, of, of activity is gym. Contrast that sort of person with, let's say, a professional football player. See, a professional football player is going to spend a lot of time in the gym as well, but sooner or later, they're going to go play football. Their exercise, their time in the gym is meant for this other activity. For the football player, the gym is necessary, but it is secondary to the actual work that they're trying to do. Now, most of the spiritual disciplines that we've been discussing over the course of these weeks are necessary, but secondary. They're like the gym. They're like getting in there and doing the work. And we want to be people who are shaped to look like Jesus. So we pray and we study and we fast. And those things are means to the end of Christ-likeness. But generosity is a little bit different. It's less like going to the gym and it's more like playing football. Generosity doesn't just prepare us to be like Jesus. It is an activity of Jesus. It is an expression of the very character of God. God in his nature is a giver. He is generous. He's he's constantly giving. Jackson brought it up when we were singing. He's giving you the breath in your lungs right now as we speak. And our practice of generosity directly correlates to the activity of God in the world. We can't say, really, that we fast because God fasts or that we Sabbath because God Sabbaths, at least not in the same way, but God's generosity in that he gives himself to us in Christ is on full display at Advent, and we give because God gives. Being a person that gives themselves away for the good of others is a direct reflection on the character of God. And by practicing the discipline of generosity, we are stepping directly into roles as men and women displaying his image in the world. So this last discipline that we're going to talk about in this series this morning, it might be the most difficult for us. 
Even those in this room that would say maybe they're struggling financially are just orders of magnitude more wealthy than most of the people in the world. Uh, For instance, a family of four in the United States making $60,000 a year. Maybe that seems like a lot to you. Maybe that doesn't seem like very much. But if that's you, you're in the top 8% globally of all people for wealth. Now, if you're only making half that, if you're only making $30,000 a year as a family of four, and, and that's, a, I would say, a, a, a place of real challenge, in, at least in our area, you're still in the top 19% of the wealthiest people in the world. Now, there's a point where these numbers don't mean a lot. You have to have a certain amount of income to survive in a context where you're in. But my guess is that we all, at some point or another, look at our bank accounts and wish that we had a little bit more. The practice of simplicity and generosity is a spiritual discipline that is intended to push against that part of your soul. And depending on how loud that part of your soul is, this might be a very uncomfortable money talk today. But it's Jesus talking, so we're going to do it. This morning in Matthew 6, we're going to look primarily at money and possessions. These ideas could apply to time, to ability, to priority. But Jesus is going to talk about two categories of of people, people that have stuff and people that don't have stuff. And what is brilliant about both of these categories is depending on the day of the week, probably, we probably think we fit in both of them. So we're going to look at Jesus' commands here in general, and then we're going to highlight some practical ways that we can be generous and practice this discipline this Advent season. So Jesus starts with the idea that that there are people in his audience that have stuff. What does he say about this? And just right off the bat, Jesus is going to say, don't keep your stuff because it will rot your soul and draw you away from God. Look at Matthew 6, verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. R.T. France, in his commentary on Matthew, says that this should be translated not as a warning about a possibility, but as a command against current practice. That we should be reading here, stop storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The assumption is that we've already been doing this. Treasures on earth. Why do we do this? Because we might need them. Because we might run out. My wife and I were talking about this this last week specifically with regard to our kitchen drawers. And we just have so much stuff in our kitchen drawers. And I was complaining to her that it was her fault that we had so much stuff in her, our kitchen drawers. And she rhyme, reminded me of a couple years ago where uh, Thanksgiving where I was trying a new turkey recipe and I bought a turkey injector, which is like a horse syringe for broth. And it was like $30. And I used it one time. And it's in that drawer. And she said, so you're going to get rid of your turkey injector? Or next time you want to inject a turkey, you're going to spend another $30 on a new turkey injector? And I, I was caught. <laughs> because, yeah, I might need that turkey injector someday. I can't get rid of it. And this is, this is the way we tend to live our lives. We hold on to things, whether it's money in the bank or tools in your shed. This brings us a sense of security. 
But Jesus says it's a misplaced sense of security. Everything that you have is subject to loss. None of it is really in your control. And the only way to be confident in the security of your treasure is to transfer it to the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's really important to note here that Jesus is not talking about making money. He's talking about keeping money. We would say it's the difference between your income and your net worth, what you make versus what you keep. Jesus seems to be a lot more concerned about what we keep. In Luke 12, we read, he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The question of that parable is where do your treasures go? When they come in, do you keep them or do you make them useful for the kingdom? Are you rich towards yourself or are you rich towards God? Jesus rebukes this man in this parable, not because he made a huge profit, not even for expanding his barns to contain the profit, but he gets rebuked for his intention to take early retirement, stop working, and spend all the money on himself. The scripture's warnings against the rich aren't directed primarily at our ability to make money, but our tendency to keep it for ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. See, this should be the goal of our work as Christians, to make more than we need so that we can give the excess away. John Wesley, a few hundred years ago, wrote this. He said, when a man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. Now, if that man, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than for that man. Ouch. See, what Wesley is saying is that as a Christian, you should work hard at your job. You, should, you shouldn't be afraid about the idea of making a good living. And then when he says you, can, you should save all you can, he doesn't mean like put a lot away in retirement. He says, organize your life in such a way that you don't have to live on much so that you can give more of your income away. Jesus, in his teaching here, says, don't, don't keep your stuff. Why? Because it will rot your soul. Verse 22, Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? This is a really weird passage to translate because there's a bunch of Greek wordplay happening that's hard to understand in English. But a good way to... Ch- translate healthy would be generous and bad would be selfish or greedy. And so, again, R.T. Francis says he seems 
likely that this saying is meant to indicate that one's indication, one indication of a person's spiritual health is their generosity or lack of it in the use of their material possessions. Jesus says that our eyes are this kind of window to what's going on inside of us. We look out in the world and we decide what to do with things. We decide that we have to have things. We've just come through the um, I had a Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all the day season, right? Small Business Saturday, that's one of them. And what I do every year is I have a, I have a series of vendors that, that uh, vend the things that I like. And I go onto their website on these sale days and they have a list of things. And what I do is I go, I didn't know that this thing existed, but it's on sale and I should buy it. Last year, Christian Books was having a sale on books. Books are one of my favorite things. And there were like so many books for like 49 cents. And me and Joanna, I think we spent $100 and got like 50 books. And they're books that I have never heard of and I have not yet read. But I, they, I, I, I might read them someday, right? See, Jesus tells us that this greedy eye is a window into the darkness of our souls. This is a diagnostic tool for us. Do you tend to see ways to give away resources when you look around the world, or do you find ways to get and hold on to more stuff? One of the things that has sprung up in the wake of Black Friday and all of the days is is Giving Tuesday, right? Like after we've just destroyed ourselves as consumers, we're going to give to charity on Tuesday. And I just, I have to admit, I got all the emails from all my favorite charities on Giving Tuesday, and I didn't really do anything with that. I didn't go on their websites to see how I could give my resources away for the kingdom. But I did go to B&H Photo to see if there were any cameras on sale. Why? Because the things that I'm drawn to show that my heart is greedy. And Jesus says, additionally, this greed will draw you away from God. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so Jesus is anticipating an objection here. The objection is, well, you know what? I think I could probably keep all my money and still be a faithful follower of Jesus. I think I'm, the, I mean, I know people don't do it, but I think I'm the exception. I, I, I have the, the spiritual fortitude. It's kind of like winning the lottery. You know, you read all these stories of people who win the lottery and just ruin their lives. And you go like, well, I would be different. If I won the lottery, I, that wouldn't happen to me. But Jesus just flat out says that faithfulness to God and a pursuit of wealth will come into conflict. There will come a time when you have to choose who you're going to serve. In Luke 18, we read a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. 
When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Commenting on this story, John Piper says, he did not say how hard will it be for those who love riches to get into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's a warning about the danger of being rich, not just wanting to be rich. And this is a serious warning, not for the lover of money, not for someone whose heart is twisted towards a ungodly or unrighteous pursuit of wealth, but simply to the person that already has a lot. And that's, that's us, maybe all of us. Most every person in this room should feel the weight of that. So what, what should we do if this is the case? The easy answer would be to just get rid of all your stuff, Right? But God typically asks more from us than that. He doesn't give us an easy answer based on external factors. He expects us to make wise choices based on internal ones. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Paul echoes Jesus here with some advice to those who are rich. And he says, don't be arrogant. Don't set your hope on your wealth. Set your hope on God and then act out that hope by leveraging your possessions to do good for others. And so if this is a discipline that we're being called to as Christians, how do we do that? What's the rule? And again, there there isn't one. We're expected to prayerfully work that out and have our hearts shaped by the generosity of Christ. Tim Keller, talking about money, says pure capitalism says all your money belongs to you. Pure Marxism says that all your money belongs to the state. Christianity says all your money belongs to God and we should be radically generous with it as Jesus was with his riches. Jesus, the one that we serve and follow, pours out his riches to undeserving people. That's all of us. He gives up his life on the cross and in salvation. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us a new family through the Father. So if we want to be shaped to be like him, what are some practical ways that we can follow in his footsteps? And just some three ideas. Firstly, be people that work hard and plan for the future. Proverbs 6 says, go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in the summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? (laughs) When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. Proverbs teaches us that laziness is not a virtue that we should cultivate. And also planning is not a lack of faith. 
But notice the ants don't gather enough food for the next 30 years. They gather enough food for the time in which food is scarce. Now, the life cycle of people is different than the life cycle of ants. I don't know if you know that. Science fact for the day. Most of us will have a season where work is plentiful, where we can earn money. And we can, most of us, expect a season of our lives where it is not possible to earn money the same way. And so just like the ants have this summer and winter rhythm, and each generation of ants, because, you know, they're constantly dying, gets kind of refreshed every season, human beings have a season of productive work and a season of retirement from the work. And so saving funds for retirement is a good thing. But the question we should ask is, how much do you need to live? Craig Blumberg in his Matthew commentary says, most all people who are able to save and invest experience the temptation drastically to overestimate their genuine needs and or to try to secure their futures against all calamity. Meanwhile, the truly destitute of the world continue to grow poor. We have to ask the same questions as we save and plan for the future as we would every day. What do I actually need? And what can I be generous with? We need to be people that balance preparation for the future with trust in God to meet our needs. And secondly, we need to be people who practice contentment. Paul says again in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul seems to think that food and clothing are enough possessions to be content. And he doesn't say it outright, but I would guess he's probably thinking of simple food and simple clothing. Back in Paul's day, about a generation before Paul, very famous couple, Antony and Cleopatra, you've probably heard of them, they, they ate pearls. Not oysters, pearls, because they were so rich. Around the same time as Paul, there was a rich Roman actor who ate a whole pie made of birds that apparently could imitate the human voice. That pie would have cost us today about $1,000. It's a pretty expensive pie. His son, uh, he demanded that powdered gemstones be sprinkled on all of his food. That's nice. I think we do that now. Rich women wore expensive clothing and wore elaborate hairdos that they had their slaves spend hours creating for them just to show off their immense wealth. One rich Roman gave a jeweled bracelet to his pet eel. But then think about, think about what we do today. I did a little search this week. You can get a dog bathtub covered in 45,000 crystals for $7,000 online. They sell a, there's an $11,500 cocktail on the menu at Gigi's in London. And if you want to make your own cocktails, you can get 50 hand-carved ice cubes for $325. There's a man in India who had made a $160,000 18-karat gold shirt to wear 
Uh, and, a, and a guy in Michigan, I think, that bought one of John Lennon's teeth for $31,000. And it's super easy to point out wealthy people who do ridiculous things with all of their excess. But most of us literally have dozens of things in our homes that we spent too much money on that we don't believe that we could live without. And it's those things that take hold of our hearts. John Chrysostom in the 400s said, he is not rich who is surrounded by many possessions, but he who does not need many possessions. And he is not poor who possesses nothing, but he who requires many things. We ought to consider this to be the distinction between poverty and wealth. When therefore you see anyone longing for many things, esteem him of all men the poorest, even though he possesses all manner of wealth. Again, when you see one who does not wish for many things, judge him to be of all men most affluent, even if he possesses nothing. For by the condition of our mind, not by the quantity of our material wealth, should it be our custom to distinguish between poverty and affluence. So what does it look like to practice contentment, to, to be simple in the way we live our lives? And that, that's a question, again, that looks different for every person in every household. Toys, clothes, games, books, tools, knickknacks, whatever, these are possessions that we hold on to sometimes that we don't even realize are holding us back in our pursuit of Jesus. And we have to take that before the Lord and ask him honestly to critique our standard of living. Some examples from our family's life, not because we're doing it right, but just because we're trying to figure it out just like everyone. A number of years ago, we, we downsized our home. Uh, we, we just made a conscious decision to live in less square footage. And then a couple summers later, we added some extra square footage because it wasn't enough. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a back and forth. I, I try to have a simple wardrobe. If you're ever like, why does Zach always wear the same pair of jeans and T-shirt every week? It's because this is all the clothes I have. <laughs> I have. I have like six shirts and two pairs of jeans. and Just because I just don't want to deal with it. I, I want to take that um, piece of, of, of stressor and affluence out of my life. At one point I had, I think, a dozen guitars. Some of you guys are like, don't talk about the guitars. <laughs> Drew. I have two now. Maybe that's too many. I don't know. I've got an acoustic guitar, an electric guitar, and, and I feel like that's enough. May, I mean, somebody might push back there. But here's the thing. I have way too many books, and I don't want to get rid of them. And I also own a lot of tools, and I don't want to get rid of them either. Because what if I need one? You know? I used it one time three years ago but I might need it again. All that to say, I'm a work in progress here. There are things in my life that I think that Jesus is graciously like leaving out until I'm ready to make bigger decisions. There are things that he's called our family into that have been really fruitful for us. One of the things about downsizing our house is I think it is um, in a critical time when our oldest daughter was becoming um, more of an independent teenager, I think it added... Um, a cohesiveness to our family, not having a bunch of separate spaces for everybody to retreat to. But the answer to that question for you is going to look different to the way it's looked for us. But the principle is we're all called 
to be content. And then thirdly, we're called to give generously. How should we decide how much of our riches we should be giving away? And again, everyone's going to answer this differently, but here's a scriptural principle from 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an exhortation. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So Paul says three things there. He says, plan your giving in advance. This team is going to come to you, Corinth, and I want you to have decided in advance already how much you're going to give to this mission effort. I'm a big fan. This isn't, this isn't in the Bible. This is a New Testament command, but I'm a big fan of percentage giving. As we've um, given to the Lord throughout our marriage, and I, I, I say our marriage because all of the time in my life I've had money, I've been married. <laughs> Said something about my wife, I think. Um, but this applies to single people too, right? We've just ahead of time said, we're going to give this percentage of our income to the work of the Lord. And sometimes that's been a lot. Sometimes that's not been very much. But anytime we've had resources, we've just, again, plan in advance. This is what we're going to do. Paul says, give cheerfully, not because you think that you have to. This is one of the reasons, and and passing an offering plate in a church service is not a sinful thing. It's not a bad thing. But one of the reasons why we don't do it is because we think it tends to create an anxiety around an expectation to have to give. Oh, I see all these other people giving and I gotta, you know, I gotta keep up appearances. And we just wanna do away with that and say, hey, your giving is between you and the Lord and God wants you to give because you want to. Because Jesus has given so much to you, you wanna give back to the work of his kingdom. Give cheerfully. And then third, Paul says to give in faith that God is gonna take care of you. God is able to make grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. That's a pretty big promise. And for us, again, this, is, this has been a commitment to be willing to give in faith when we don't think we have enough. And there have been many times in our lives where the math didn't pencil out, and many of you know how this works, where like these... This number is the bills and the income number is much smaller and there's no way that this makes any sense. And in our family, we decided to live by faith. We're going to continue to give a percentage of our income if we have income and God will take care of it. And God always has. This advice from C.S. Lewis, I think, is pretty powerful. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Jesus' warning to us to not store up treasures on earth, to live with less, to give away more, is a spiritual discipline that we, maybe more than any other generation, 
need to pay attention to in practice because we are the most affluent culture in the world that has the greatest ability to just ignore this as a Christian practice. But then the question becomes, well, what if you don't have? What, what if we, we, we can say that like most of us in this room are, are wealthier than you know, the vast majority of people in the world, but what if, what if you're just like struggling? And we're going to briefly touch on this section of Jesus' teaching this morning. I'm not going to read it again, but Matthew 6, 25 through 34 addresses this anxiety. To sum it up, he, Jesus says, don't, don't worry about those things. Trust in the Lord to provide for you and know that he will. And I think this is the beautiful thing about this is that even if we will admit that we are the most wealthy people in the world as Americans, I think we all feel this way. We all feel like no matter how much money or how little money you make or how much money or how little wealth you have, you look at your bank account at least sometimes and go like, oh, it's pretty tight right now. I wish there was more. What are we going to do if this happens? See, the anxiety of managing stuff and the anxiety of not having stuff work in parallel. They both take our eyes off of the Lord's provision. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows what you need. He will come through, and not maybe in the way you want, but in the way you need. I feel this way often. I, I feel like there are just, there are holes in our bank account or things that we want to do. Um, there's college expenses to pay for. There's all of these things that I feel like, man, we can't afford, and, and I'd really like more to cover that. And then I get up in the morning and I pray, give us today our daily bread. And I, I just, every, every morning I go, but like not really daily, like more than that. Like I just, I'd like to know like a month or two out. But that's not the prayer, is it? That's not the trust that God is asking us for. But as I look back, God has always provided our daily bread. He has always given us the thing that we need. Often not the thing that I wanted, but the thing that we needed. So if you're someone today who would say, I have anxiety about not having enough. I'm in this category of worry that Jesus brings out. Your temptation then is just to disregard everything about being rich. To say, I'm not a rich person. None of that applies to me. Simplicity, generosity as a discipline, maybe that someday will be important, but not today. But I would challenge all of us that think that way, and I can easily think that way, to be a person that practices the discipline of simplicity and generosity regardless of your material wealth. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, and he says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their abilities and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. He's saying that the churches in Macedonia, they are poor. 
They do not have excess resources, but they were so bought into the work of the gospel that they figured out how to be generous with what they had, even though Paul says they were in extreme poverty. And they were blessed for that. Paul brags on them for that. Their generosity probably wasn't measured in dollar signs, probably wasn't a lot objectively, but as a posture of their heart, they exercised great generosity in the midst of their lack. And so maybe you're here and you'd say like, we're barely making ends meet right now. Or maybe you have like a six-figure salary, but you're kind of strapped with school debt. And it just, whatever it is, it just doesn't pencil for you. I think Paul's encouragement is that we can still decide to be generous with what we have, no matter how little that we think it is. And oftentimes, that doesn't require making more, but it does require living with less. Transferring those treasures on earth to be treasures in heaven. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to give us some practical tips for celebrating simplicity and generosity this Advent season. So Advent, again, is this season where we are reminded that Jesus has come in the flesh as a baby to live a life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died, to be raised from the dead, to give us new life in him. He pours himself out into the world for us. He gives himself to us. And while we should practice generosity all the time, this is a season that it seems appropriate to kind of lean into this discipline a little bit more. And so we've assembled some ways that you can do that. You, you don't have to do this. You can do whatever you want, whatever the Lord leads you to do. But uh, as, a, as a resource, we, we have this little card. It's out in the lobby. And there's QR codes on it, super technical and fancy. There are four QR codes on here, and I want to just go through them real quick. The first one is that we've partnered with the Salvation Army to be a part of their bell ringing program this year. If you're unaware, the Salvation Army is a, is a Christian church. They've been in existence since 1865, and they've been setting out kettles to collect spare change in storefronts since 1891. They, their hope is that they would collect $425,000 in Kootenai County this Christmas season. And that money goes to supply people with scholarships to the Croc Center who couldn't afford it, uh, basic needs assistance to the community, water safety classes for children, mental health services, and a whole lot more. The, the Croc Center's membership budget funds the big facility, but all of the social service work that they do in the community is funded by donations. And so we said, hey, we would like to sign up to ring the bell in front of Albertsons for a few hours to help out with that, um, that work. And this is an opportunity to be generous with your time. So our youth group is partnering with All of Life's youth group on December 16th to ring the bell. There's some sign-up slots on Church Center. And on the 17th, which is Sunday, all of the afternoon slots from noon to 6 after church are available. And so you can get, you can take your kids to ring, you can bring a guitar and sing Christmas songs. It's a lot of fun and it's an opportunity to um, practice generosity without having any money yourself. Secondly, Village of Hope is a nonprofit that does foster care support. And they are collecting $25 gift cards for foster children for Christmas. If you go to 
our website or church center, you can get more information on that and suggestions on what types of gift cards. Like, you know, there's like store gift cards, but then there's a lot of experience gift cards that children might like at, at the, the Jump for Joy place and the climbing gym and all of those things. In, in units of $25, if you could purchase a $25 gift card and bring it back to the church by December 17th, we're going to take all of them and give them to Village of Hope. Opportunity number three. World Relief Spokane helps refugees from all over the world settle into new lives in Spokane. And many of the refugees are men and women and children that are fleeing persecution. Many of them Christians who are fleeing uh, religious persecution and have been um, heavily vetted by the United States government for about a year and a half and said, yeah, you, you can come to the United States and we will accept you and we will care for you and we will resettle you here. And that, there's an office for that in Spokane. And many of these refugees that are coming into Spokane in this season come from countries that don't experience cold weather. And so, refugee, uh, so World Relief has called out for Christian churches to collect coats and hats and gloves for children and adults to help prepare our new neighbors for their first winter in the Pacific Northwest. And so again, if you can go out and get new winter clothing and bring them to the church by December 17th, we will go to World Relief and donate them there. And then number four, some of you might remember Peter Lublink, who was here a couple summers ago. He came and spoke about the work of Bethany Kids training and equipping pediatric surgeons in Africa. The Bethany Kids is opening a new program in Burundi this January, and uh, they are sending Dr. Alliance Niyokuri to serve as the pediatric surgeon there. Um, I got, late in the week, I got a video from Dr. Niyokuri, which I will share with you next week. I didn't have time to do anything with it. But Peter let me know that the cost of all of the medical supplies that they're going to need at this uh, outpost in 2024 will be $5,000. And I told them I thought our church could cover that. So I would just ask you to prayerfully consider giving financially to the work of Bethany Kids in Burundi. You can write a check and write Burundi in the memo section and put it in the offering box. You can go online and there's going to be a, a drop-down box. One of those drop-downs will say Burundi Medical Supplies. You can donate. And we're going to be taking donations through the end of the year to meet that $5,000 goal for medical supplies. So to wrap up, we tend to think, if I have extra in this season, after all the presents are purchased, and after all the parties are attended, and after all the new clothes are bought, and all the decorations are taken care of, if there's leftovers then maybe we can give something. But here's the challenge, and I think it comes from Jesus, to fund your generosity by your simplicity. To give up maybe a couple of the presents, to pull back on the holiday extras, to figure out what monthly sus subscriptions you have that you don't really need, and to be generous with those resources and take some of the wealth that we all have and we hold on to and convert it into resources for the kingdom to be people who trust God to give us what we need and to practice being like him in the way that he gives to those who have less. So, let's do some Q&R.
Is godly understanding of money compatible with our modern ideals of what retirement is expected to be? I don't know. I think in general, um, Craig Blomberg's quote about retirement is, is helpful. I think we, we expect a level of affluence in retirement that is probably in line with the way that we expect to live our lives, our whole lives. And I think both of those things could probably be brought down a few notches. I, I don't think it is wise to burden people with your retirement. I think it's wise to save money for your retirement. Um, but I think you have to ask the question, like, what are my expectations for my retirement? Is, is it, and, and is that a necessary thing? Or could I pull back on that and still be comfortable and be more generous? If everyone gave up everything they didn't need, no one would make unnecessary things. No one needs a camera or wedding photos. No one would make them. If no one made cameras, you would be unemployed and destitute, along with former camera makers rather than self-sufficient. How would this work? I think that's an that's a interesting question. There's a lot in there. I think there are things that we need, and then there are things that we want. Uh, in order to do the job that I have, I need a certain number of tools. But there's always something bigger or better or newer, right? And the temptation in my heart is not to be content with what I have in that realm of, of running my business, but it but it is to get the next thing and the bigger thing, whether I need it or not. And so, yeah, I mean, the thought experiment of like everyone, if everyone dropped down to subsistence living, all of these industries would fail and the economy would crumble. And, and first of all, I would say that that's an indictment on our economy, that reckless spending is required to keep our country working. There's something wrong with that. Um, but secondly, I, I don't think it's so much about, again, the, the mechanisms by, what people, by how people generate wealth. I think there are a lot of really godly ways to generate wealth that require a lot of income. But I think asking what you keep and what you add and how you purchase, those are the questions that I think Jesus wants us to grapple with as we take the treasures we have on earth and transfer them to heaven. I'll help you out and take the tools since I use them daily and just let you borrow them when you need. Thank you. I've actually thought it'd be really cool. We don't have a space for it, but I, I would love to have like a tool library at, at, at the church if we ever have a building. I think that'd be great. Mm. Is saving for a down payment wrong or trying to pay off debt is wrong? Wanting to see a new vehicle wrong? I think, I, I think those questions are usually not the right ones. Um, Right or wrong, there are right and wrong questions, don't mishear me. But in this world, I don't know that right or wrong is the right framework to ask. Right? Is saving for a down payment wrong? No, it's home ownership is great. It's a good thing. Saving for that reason can be the right thing. For some of you, maybe the Lord is saying, I don't want that for you. I want you to continue to rent and give your extra money away to whatever God is leading you to. And that's fine. 
but I don't think it would be wrong to purchase a home. I think paying off debt is a good thing. Proverbs has some pretty harsh words about how debt binds us. And if you have debt, I think working to pay it off is a good thing. A new vehicle, I would say buying a new... (laughs) No, I'm not saying that. I would would ask hard questions about buying a new vehicle. (laughs) Replacing a vehicle that needs replaced, I think that's, that's just the world that we live in. And I think we are called to be wise in those ways. Last one, how do you live in simplicity and not take on a poverty mindset? So if I understand what a poverty mindset is in this question, it is, it is a legalism surrounding a lack of possessions. And so if you walk into a room and have rags on and eat dirt, and you're like, look at how much holier I am than the rest of you, then your heart is so out of alignment with Jesus anyway. It doesn't matter what possessions you have. I don't think this is one of those areas where, again, everyone's path towards simplicity and generosity is going to look differently. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have things, and again, I'm, it's probably going to be the books that I'm just not going to get rid of. I've, I've been f- trying to figure out how to do that, and I just, I don't know if I'm not holy enough. And you might be someone who'd be like, I don't need books. I get rid of all my books. And, and, and then you can judge me for being unholy, and, and that's fine. <laughs> but actually, that's not fine. The point is, is that the Lord is going to speak to you about areas of your life that you are trusting in material possessions, that you have more than you need, that you're, that you're hoarding money, whether through actual funds or through um, things that you spend money on or possessions that you have that you don't use, that don't actually matter to your life. And he's going to say, hey, get rid of those things. Leverage those things for the kingdom. And that might be that's going to be completely different for everyone in this room. It's going to change based on the, the, the stage of life that you're in, the family that you have, the money that you make, the obligations that you have, the passions that God has given you. And so, unfortunately, as, as most things are when, when it comes to um, these sort of disciplines, is we need to seek the Lord. We need to ask the Lord, what would you have me do? Knowing that I, and I think Lewis's line is, is, is really helpful, knowing that I should look different compared to my equal, my, my equal income neighbors, right? If you've got two families that have the same amount of wealth in America, and one of them is Christian and one of them is not, there should be a difference in the way they understand their money. What are the specifics of that? That's, that's between you and the Lord. So, we're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate this gift of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us, his grace being poured out onto us and our adoption into his family to be sons and daughters of the God of the universe who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who is the wealthiest being there is and who lavishly gives to his children. We're going to be reminded that we have what we need from the resources that Christ shares with us. So as the band comes up and you you come and get the communion elements and take them back to your seat, take a moment to ask the Lord to shine light on the places where you are storing up treasures on earth and how you can release them in a practice of simplicity and generosity.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.